You're listening to a special bonus episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. in March of this year, I put together a quick bonus episode of this podcast after participating in what was the largest presidential caucus in U.S. political history. Despite the difficulties associated with casting my vote in this caucus, the line to cast that first ballot was 20 blocks long, I was invigorated by the experience, in, in part because of the historic nature of the event, but uh, mostly because of the, the candidate I was supporting. Bernie Sanders received 80% of the vote in our Boise, Idaho caucus. Here's a quick clip from that episode. What if we could elect politicians to office who understand the importance and the urgency of the climate change issue? Well, it just so happens that we currently actually do have a candidate who is running for president who is talking about climate change with a sense of urgency only previously expressed by third-party candidates who in reality had virtually no chance of being elected to office. Bernie Sanders supports a tax on all carbon emissions, as well as a ban on fossil fuel extraction from public lands, as well as a complete ban on fracking for natural gas. He also has pledged to dramatically reduce the influence that the fossil fuel industry currently has over the political system by banning fossil fuel lobbyists from working in the White House. Let's put all of these promises aside for a moment, however. We stand in a moment of time where many climate experts believe that we have already reached a tipping point, a point at which it may be impossible to reverse some of the most catastrophic effects of climate change. Despite this, we have never elected a leader here in the U.S. who is willing to take the very simple step of recognizing the extreme urgency of addressing this issue. Bernie Sanders is the first viable presidential candidate in the history of the United States who talks about climate change with the sense of urgency that is needed to have any kind of positive impact. I don't care if you disagree with Bernie on every single other issue that he stands for. He is on the right side of the one issue that is more important by orders of magnitude than anything else being discussed on the campaign trail right now. Now, as we all know, Bernie Sanders did not ultimately win the Democratic nomination for president and has been encouraging his supporters to cast their vote for Hillary Clinton. This has led to widespread discontent and disillusionment within the climate change movement and lots of disagreement over who is the right candidate to support from a climate change perspective. Do we listen to Bernie and cast our vote for Hillary? The very same person who, as Secretary of State, had a top aide who left the State Department to go work as the chief lobbyist for TransCanada, the multinational corporation behind the Keystone XL pipeline project. The very same person who heavily promoted fracking for natural gas all across the globe and helped U.S. oil companies cut deals with other countries to extract fossil fuels. Before I address this particularly tricky question of which presidential candidate to vote for, I'd like to address a larger question that was brought to our attention by a guest on the podcast, Nathaniel Stinnett. Nathaniel is the founder of the Environmental Voter Project, and he explained in episode 84 of the show why it's so important for environmentalists to get out and vote, regardless of who they vote for. 
I've been working in politics and, and in particular political campaigns and, and advocacy work for over a decade. And there was something that always frustrated me. It, it made me want to put my head through a wall. And it, it's maybe something that you're aware of, Matt, uh, if not painfully aware of. And that's this. When you poll likely voters for any election, we could be talking about president of the United States or a Boise, Idaho mayoral election or anything in between. And you ask those likely voters to list the issues they care most about. Environmental issues, whether it be climate change or conservation or clean air, all environmental issues are almost always at the bottom of that list of priorities. Almost always. And that has a huge impact on how policy is made. I mean, if, if voters don't care about a set of issues, can we really expect politicians to care deeply about those issues? Um, and so this is something that always frustrated me. I saw it on every campaign I worked on. We would be working with candidates who always really cared about environmental issues, but it was very hard to justify talking about environmental issues and leading on environmental issues when they weren't a high priority for voters. I mean, when you run campaigns, your only goal is to get 50% plus one of the vote on one day, on election day. That's it. That's your only goal. And so spending your precious time and money talking about a set of issues that voters don't really prioritize is is malpractice. So that always frustrated me. But I was doing some research for a friend of mine who's a national pollster a few years ago, and I stumbled upon something that totally blew my mind, Matt. And that was this. The reason so few voters prioritize climate change or other environmental issues is not because too few Americans care about environmental issues. I'll say that again because it's important. The, the reason so few voters care about environmental issues is not because too few Americans care about environmental issues. The reason is just that environmentalists are awful voters. <laughs> They're awful voters. And and because campaigns can ever, only ever really afford to talk to good voters, it made me realize, gosh, we, we need an organization that actually doesn't care about, about who's going to win the next election. We need, we need an organization that addresses this turnout problem, that just goes after the environmentalists who don't vote and tries to turn them into better voters. So Nathaniel's argument here is that if more environmentalists start voting, then politicians will actually start to pay attention to environmental issues, both in their campaigns and in their time spent in office. Now, I really love this fresh perspective on the importance of voting, uh, in part because it eases some of this burden of the decision about who to vote for. If the simple act of casting your vote is so much more important than who you actually cast your vote for, then we can relax a little bit and not stress out so much over this decision that we're faced with currently. That said, 
the decision remains, <laughs> right? Do we listen to Bernie and vote for Hillary, or do we revert to a protest vote and cast a ballot for uh, somebody like the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, or maybe even uh, write Bernie's name in on the ballot? Well, we had a fascinating conversation uh, on this very topic with the former co-chair of the National Green Party, Audrey Clement. Now, the message that Audrey shared with us was not exactly what I was expecting. Although she told us that she would be voting for a third-party candidate, she also told us that none of the third-party candidates, Jill Stein included, were truly qualified for the job. I'm saying that I'm going to vote for a third-party candidate because I believe that the U.S. is governed by a two-party system that amounts to tyranny. And that tyranny must be overthrown at all costs. However, I believe that there is some sort of a dynamic involved here whereby the third parties are not ready to rule because they are playing to their extremes. And that's not where the voters are. And the fallacy that they must play to their extremes in order to be true to their cause or their principles is wrong also. Because the voters are in the center for a reason, and it's a good reason. And until you appreciate that fact, you're not ready to rule. So what are we supposed to think when a Green Party representative tells us that her own party's candidate is unqualified? I would argue that just because Jill Stein is clearly not an experienced politician does not necessarily mean that she's undeserving of our vote. I try to think realistically about what the Green Party might be able to accomplish in this election, given that their chances of actually winning the election are roughly zero. I posed this question to Audrey in our interview. Um, so you've been talking primarily about the messaging of the candidates, right? And the mistakes yeah. that you think third-party candidates are making on messaging. But I'm, I'm also curious about strategy. Democratic and Republican candidates, they focus on these swing states. You know, they essentially ignore states like Idaho, where I live. You know, they basically concede that state to the other party um, and focus only on the states where it's expected that the race between the two main party candidates will be close. So I, I guess what I'm wondering is, like, does the Green Party have any kind of strategy as far as, like, how do they decide where they spend most of their energy and time and money campaigning? Because it seems to me like there's an opportunity for the Green Party in states like Idaho, which, by the way, voted overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, 78% um, for Bernie Sanders. It seems like there's a huge opportunity in states like Idaho where the Democrats that are there are very progressive, but the Democratic Party is not going to campaign at all in Idaho. Hillary Clinton is not going to come to Idaho. So it seems like there's this huge opportunity there to you know, get a substantial uh, percentage of the vote in a state like Idaho. Uh, I would agree with you that she ought to go to the states where Bernie did well. That's pretty self-evident. So despite the statement that you just heard Audrey make here, uh, that it seems pretty self-evident that a Green Party candidate should be spending a significant portion of time in states where Bernie did very well, this simply has not been the approach taken by Jill Stein and the Green Party. Now, my advice, since I am clearly such a well-seasoned political strategist, 
would have been for Jill Stein and the Green Party to focus their attention on a few select geographical regions where, A, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats uh, clearly were not going to be campaigning because they have no chance of winning that particular state's electoral votes, and B, where Bernie Sanders won big in the primaries. I see this as a massive strategic mistake on the part of the Green Party, but Interestingly enough, there is actually another third-party candidate that has taken an approach very similar to this. Evan McMullen is a former Republican who is running for president as an independent and has been positioning himself as a saner alternative to Donald Trump. He entered the race uh, pretty late and will only be in the ballot in 11 states, but polling now suggests that he could win his home state of Utah and he has a long-shot chance at winning Idaho and Wyoming. Three states where, A, the Republican candidate, Donald Trump, isn't focusing any of his attention because it's assumed that these states will vote Republican, and B, all three of these states are states where Trump lost in the Republican primary to Ted Cruz. Now, I'm certainly not advocating for everyone to vote for Evan McMullen. His traditional Republican values uh, exclude any kind of urgent action on the climate change issue. But we can hope that in future elections, the Green Party will learn from his successes. Even if the Greens get a higher percentage of the total popular vote than Evan McMullen does, Evan could become the first third-party candidate to win any electoral votes at all since 1968. And remember, the popular vote does not count. Remember 2000. So where are we left? Here is my pragmatic perspective. The Green Party clearly has the most aggressive plan for addressing climate change. If you live in a state where it's relatively clear which major party candidate will win, I say that Jill Stein is the clear choice. This is who I will be voting for as I live in a state where the Democratic candidate has no chance of winning. If you live in one of these swing states, you have a much more difficult decision to make. Vote with your conscience or vote with the lesser of two evils. We don't have time in this episode to flesh out the debate over this age-old question, but I will return to what Nathaniel Stinnett told us, that this is a much less important decision than the decision over whether or not to get out and vote at all. If you're showing up at the polls, you're doing your part as a good environmentalist, period, regardless of who you vote for. Now, many folks are eager to point out, we're not just voting for a president on Tuesday. There are lots of important down-ballot races this election season, and it's important to do your research before showing up at the polls. These races often get very little attention amidst the craze of the presidential race, so you should definitely familiarize yourself with these candidates and these issues before arriving at your polling place. Here in Idaho and throughout the Intermountain West, the issue of public lands has been a top priority, with Republican candidates actually split um, over this issue of privatizing public lands or transferring them to state hands, which uh, essentially has the same result. Democratic congressional candidates here in Idaho are taking advantage of this and playing up their unwavering support for public lands. Have a look at the websites for Democratic Senate candidate Jerry Sturgill or Democratic Congressional candidate James Piotrowski, and you'll notice the prominence of the public lands issue. We talked with Brad Brooks from the Wilderness Society about the importance of public lands. Here's what he had to say. 
there is a, a movement that's been happening for the last few years by uh, individuals and political organizations to uh, take public lands and give them to state, private, and other uh, entities, I should say. Um, that movement is uh, very well-funded, politically savvy, um, and, um, and I think it's spreading, and we're seeing it spread across the country right now. What motivates that interest, I can only you know, speculate about. But most of it is, I, I think there are some factual, there's some factual information out there, which is that there are folks that just, just strictly do not believe in the idea of public lands for whatever reason. <clears throat> uh, most of them are not living in the West because if they lived out here, I just can't fathom and understand if you hunt or hike or fish or like to ride your bike, <laughs> you couldn't like public lands. Um, that movement... Um, which I will say, yes, this is not the first time we've seen it, um, but it's different than other times and the other movements that we've seen. It wasn't that long ago we had what was called the Sagebrush Rebellion. Um, you know, every decade or two, you you tend to see some group of of uh, sort of despondent folks, uh, individuals who are frustrated with with federal government. Um, you know, start to organize and uh, for whatever reason and call for taking public lands away from um, public ownership and out of, out of federal management. This is different, though, and I, I'll tell you, just, you know, I had to find religion on this issue personally. I didn't take it seriously for a long time, mostly because, uh, you know, people get angry all the time about whatever. You know, frustrations with the federal government run long and deep in this country and come from every angle in every part of the country. But um, what really made me um, rethink whether or not this was worth paying attention to was when I started seeing elected officials who had always considered this issue of privatizing public lands as toxic to their interests, moderate elected officials from, from both parties, frankly, um, who started you know, telling me that it was a conversation we needed to start having about whether or not we should you know, look at privatizing public lands or giving them to states. And when I heard those individuals start talking about it openly, it, it, what it told me was that they were feeling a safe political space to talk about it in a way that they have never felt before. While it is significant that an environmental issue, this public lands issue, has become a front and center topic of debate here in one of the nation's most conservative states, unfortunately, none of the Democratic congressional candidates running here in Idaho have a very good chance at winning. The positions of Idaho Republican Congressman Mike Crapo and Raul Labrador, both of whom are up for re-election on this issue, are not cut and dry. Labrador has not endorsed the transfer of public lands to states, but has called for state management of national forest land. Crapo opposed a public lands transfer bill here in the Idaho legislature, but voted in favor of a congressional bill that established a procedure for selling, exchanging, and transferring public lands to the states. Of course, this is just one of many conservation issues being debated in down-ballot races going on all across the country. Do your research, but remember, just showing up is the most important decision that you can make. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the election and its impact on conservation issues, or if there's a local conservation issue being debated where you live that you'd like to share, leave a comment on the new Eyes on Conservation Facebook group. Just search for EOC Podcast in Facebook and ask to join the group. 
We are working to develop this group as a community forum where listeners of this show can express their thoughts and opinions on the topics that we discuss here on the show. You can also find the link to our new EOC podcast Facebook group on the show notes page for this episode, along with links to all of the past episodes and interviews that we referenced here today. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOCvote. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOCvote, V-O-T-E. The EOC Podcast is a production of Wild Lens. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs>